Matt Whitaker, former U.S. Acting Attorney General. This is such a great conversation about America, our future, what's going to save our republic. We have a great football player. Matt Whitaker is here. Matt. They tried to bury me. They didn't realize I was a C. Former Acting U.S. Attorney General. Under President Trump. I'm going to be an unwavering supporter of law enforcement. Welcome to Liberty and Justice with your host, Matt Whitaker. Welcome to Liberty and Justice. I'm your host, Matt Whitaker. I am at Israel right now in Tel Aviv at CPAC Israel. Ben Shapiro is speaking right now uh, as the keynote. Um, today's episode is actually going to be my panel from CPAC Israel that I was on today with the former Minister of Justice, Amir Ohana, here in Israel. He's a member of the Knesset and a great guy. We talked about the rule of law both in Israel and the United States. And it was a great discussion. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can watch my show every Friday at 7 p.m. on CPAC Now and anywhere that good podcasts are distributed. And everything I'm doing is at Whitaker.tv. God bless and thank you for watching. We're now going to have a panel called Conservative Judicial Revolution. Let's welcome Amir Ohana, member of Knesset for Likud. And former Israeli Minister of Justice. Thank you. Let's welcome to the stage Matt Whitaker, former U.S. Attorney General. Matt, I skipped you. Let me give you a handshake. I, I was looking away. Okay. And Dan Schneider, Vice President of CPAC. All right, gentlemen, so I'm going to leave you to it. Thank you for coming to the stage. Enjoy. Yes, I'm coming. Thank you. We all do, yes. Now you can hear me, right? Well, thank you all. We've uh, really enjoyed Israel the last few days. Um, we, we took a little bus tour, and uh, somebody mentioned something about the West Bank, and I said, I don't know what that is. I only know what Israel is. You all might be thinking that we're going to have a conversation about heads of state because our current head of state was just here and you do not have a head of state. Um, but we're going to be talking about something that has uh, greater implications in the long run, the judiciary. And it is my distinct pleasure to be sitting next to two of the most relevant men in the world to discuss this topic. The man immediately to my left needs no introduction to all of you, former Minister of, the Justi of Justice, current member of the Knesset, Amir Ohana. Thank you. Matt Whitaker served as the U.S. Attorney General in the United States. And I will have to say, I don't know that there was anybody in the Trump cabinet who did more to save the republic than Matt Whitaker. Hello, Israel. Thanks for having me. 
I'm going to start off with a big, bold question for both of you. Please describe the balance of power that exists between the respective judiciaries, the supreme courts of your, of your two countries, versus the elected branches in your countries. What is that today? How has it changed? Go ahead. Matt, please be my guest. Okay, well, so in the United States, um, we have, you know, sort of three co-equal branches of government. The Founding Fathers, in their infinite wisdom, and if you read the Federalist Papers, um, written by uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, mostly, and a little bit by John Jay, uh, they would suggest to you that the judiciary was supposed to be the least powerful branch because they didn't have any way to implement their uh, opinions. All they had was sort of just this, this idea of goodwill and following the law. The way it's evolved in the United States is we have had a complete shift where the judiciary has become very powerful, especially to the left when they control it, uh, and it's where they go to accomplish much of their left-wing radical agenda, at least in the past. The executive branch has continued to ascend to strength by really unelected bureaucrats in the administrative state, um, and, and now they're finally on the retreat after especially this most recent EPA uh, versus West Virginia case. And the Congress, which is supposed to represent the people, and, and do their business has been afraid to exercise that power by and large and has become mostly just a place where um, uh, petty individuals bicker about nonsense. And so, um, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court, though, is, is going to be really, you know, there's been protests ever since the Dobbs opinion, which was the opinion that, that took uh, the court out of the life issue and returned it to the people through their representatives, which to me, exactly, that it was a big deal. Thank you, thank you. To me, that just puts it back in its, you know, we have a constitution that governs and is the supreme law of the United States, and it puts it back in that structure because for so long, the Roe v. Wade opinion for 50 years has stood as this anomaly in American jurisprudence. As I said, uh, the Dobbs opinion, which, which repealed Roe v. Wade, returned the uh, idea of constitutional jurisprudence closer to the Constitution. So we're going in the right direction in America. We are, but, you know, it's not without uh, just some challenges. You know, conservative legal thought in the United States um, is not monolithic. You have conser uh, kind of true conservatives and then you have libertarians. And so you have these justices that uh, on specific issues, I think of Gorsuch in one case and Kavanaugh and Roberts in another case, uh, are going to sometimes not always agree uh, with sort of where the heartland of American conservatism is. But by and large, there is a five or maybe six conservative majority out of the nine justices. Amir. Not only it is just as bad, it's much worse here. <laughs> I would have to say that, thank you. If I would go to the starting point, I would go to 1977. In 1977 in Israel, we had what we call Hamapach, the political upset in which for the first time the prime minister was not from the left wing, but rather Menachem Begin, leader of Likud. But although since 1977 the right wing of Israel uh, uh, formed governments, it is yet to govern. Why is that? Well, now they miss Menachem Begin. They miss our leaders 
always when they are dead or irrelevant. There will come time, far from now hopefully, that they will miss, miss Netanyahu as well. But then Begin was for them a terrorist, a fascist. Ben-Gurion wouldn't even mention his name, belittling him, saying, the person sitting next to M.K. Butter. So Begin realized and understood the situation he is in. And unfortunately, uh, we have lost the battle between the judiciary and the legislator. Now, we want our countries to be uh, governed by the rule of law, but we don't want them to be governed by the rule of lawyers, which is what we have now. Why is that? You know, I can quote a, a decision of the Supreme Court back at 1979, two years after the political upset by Judge Justice Aaron Barak. And, and he was saying uh, the following words. The letter of the law is not a fortress that has to be conquered by dictionaries, but rather a package to a living idea that changes with time and circumstances, which basically means who the heck are you legislators begging and the Chachachim and the Asafsuf that you would decide. We, the enlightened person, the educated person, we will be the one to decide and this needs to change for us to be a democracy again. Yeah. In the United States, the president nominates uh, candidates to the Supreme Court and our U.S. Senate confirms or rejects them. That gives the power of the people, all of you, an influence over who actually serves on the Supreme Court. I know that the Israeli system is crazy. It and is, it, and it's and quite it, unique. And it's unique and it's designed, it seems to me specifically, to keep the elitists, the snobs, making all the decisions so that you do not have a voice in your own government. A former president of Israel even said, and this is the English translation, maybe you all know it in Hebrew, cautioning people in the, in the Knesset and elsewhere. If you try to pursue changes in the judicial system, the courts and the prosecutors will go after you like a gang. People who try to pursue reforms, to present a democratic process. He, he changed. They oftentimes he changed. get indicted. What are the reforms that are necessary in Israel? Matt, what are the reforms that the Democrats are pursuing to try to reverse these decisions in our Supreme Court? So first, I have a four-point program. First would be the notwithstanding clause that for one, once and for all, the last word would belong to the public by the representative and not to the judiciary. That's number one. Number two, the law of the attorney general. We have a position much stronger than the attorney general that you know in the States that is quite, I would say, uh, omnipotent. Uh, this position is not mentioned, in, is not uh, 
uh, arranged in a law. We need a law that for once and for all is stating what are the Attorney General's authorities, what are his boundaries, and that his opinion does not bind the government. This is sick. Did you know that the Attorney General decided that his opinion binds the government? The clerk appointed by the government is the one to decide for the democratic. Now, you were mentioning that the judiciary, and I include the Attorney General in the judiciary, should be inferior, inferior because it is the less democratic one. It is the only one that there are no elected people within it. Now, when Montesquieu brought the idea of checks and balances and uh, uh, balance of power, he said it. He said that the judiciary should be inferior. In Israel, not only it is not inferior, it is absolutely superior. And this is something also that needs to change. Number three would be, of course, changing the way that we appoint judges. Uh, a system that is so... Amir, I would like to interrupt you for just a second. Sure. All of you out there, and I, I'm just, as an American, I'm interested in how educated Israelis are. How many people actually know how justices are appointed to your own Supreme Court? Well-educated crowd, yeah. Fourth? yeah. This is really technical. How we have, we have a committee of nine, three of which are Supreme Court judges. But to be elected to the Supreme Court, it's not enough to have a majority. You need a majority of seven, which means those three judges has a veto on who gets and who doesn't get to be a Supreme Court judge. Now, the system is so successful that the number of countries that adopted it is exactly zero. I want to see a system that brings more power to the people by the representative, to see a more pluralistic, a more diverse judicial system that reflects the beautiful mosaic of the Israeli society. That is what I would like to see. Yeah, that's, Amir, that's such a great point that, that I, you know, I think about a, a lot about how judges are appointed both in the federal system and in our state systems, which are a little more diverse. But in no real situation can I think of one where there's a star chamber that picks a Supreme Court and without the, some representative of the people having a voice in that, whether oh, Matt, it's the governor, whether it's a... There is a, a part, you'll love this, their bar association has two members on that. Oh, that, <laughs> and yeah, the bar association, especially, you know, in my home state of Iowa, had a stranglehold on, on, a, on a similar, it was called the Missouri Plan, you had half citizens appointed by the governor, half lawyers appointed by the bar, chaired by the non-chief, most senior judge that wasn't the chief judge on the Supreme Court, and it spells perpetuated even with that plan. So, um, you know, I always, it's good to come here because I learned that maybe our system's not as screwed up as it is. I think one of the challenges we have in the United States, though, is the idea of lifetime appointments for federal judges. Um, because ultimately, while it does insulate them from the, um, you know, the sort of the ups and downs of the, of the, the people, I think it also, that's the problem, is it insulates them from the ups and downs. There's no response to uh, just really poor, uh, really uh, rulings uh, over a career or anything. These judges get just do their job uh, for life. And, you know, one of the things that, that both, the part, both the major parties in the United States have realized is 
They, there used to be, it used to be the cherry on top of a distinguished legal career was to become a federal judge. So you'd go in in your 60s and you'd serve for about 10 years and you'd retire with full you know, lifetime uh, retirement, which was your full salary in the federal system. And, and, they, and the, both parties got smart and they said, well, if we appoint 40-year-olds, then they can do it for 30 years instead and we'll have a much longer le legacy. I think George W. Bush probably first discovered that and, that, and then successive... Um, administrations have discovered that. And now the battle, uh, as you, if you follow American politics, is in the Senate, where uh, the Republicans successfully held open the Merrick Garland uh, appointment for a year. My home state senator, Chuck Grassley, who chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee, successfully accomplished that. There, thereby, we got a, a series of appointments, um, Gorsuch first, and then Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. And in those three... In those three, it really accomplished the goal of the conservative legal movement that was about 50 years in the making. That was training uh, at a law school level, uh, placing pe uh, students and recent graduates in uh, clerkships and really giving, vetting them and then ultimately giving them the resume that they could qualify for the Supreme Court. And so, uh, you know, the biggest challenge that I see in the United States is oftentimes we are sold by the elites, by the, the, the political, the politicians, uh, that people are conservatives and you can't really ever find anything on their record uh, that is conservative. John Roberts is a prime example. He spent a lot of time at the Department of Justice, uh, but really never had to make a decision. You know, I, I mean, having run for office a couple of times, I've had to lay out my position on life and on taxes and all the kind of issues that, um, that are important to the American people. And so th that type of record um, is important to know what kind of a judge we're going to end up with at the end of the day. Amir, the United States has a constitution. It's, a, it's an amazing document written two and a half centuries ago. Israel has no constitution. Israel has Ottoman Empire law. It's got British law. It's got all kinds of laws. Is there any hope for Israel to adopt a constitution that will help resolve any of these things? If you can find a, a vast majority of agreement within the Knesset, then yes. But unfortunately, I don't think it's any time near. Because when the state was established, they were talking about a need for a constitution, but they couldn't agree about what would that constitution be. So the first Knesset uh, uh, brought it to the second one to bring the constitution. That was Haklatat Harari, the decision of Harari, but the second Knesset was also not successful to bring a constitution. So throughout the years, we are now running for the 25th Knesset and we still don't have a constitution. What we have is basic laws that were misinterpreted by the Supreme Court as such that brings power to the courts to abort and to uh, uh, cancel Knesset laws, which, we, which is very, very controversial here in Israel. Now they have a new sense of idea that they can even cancel basic laws uh, they didn't do it yet, but they said that they have the power to do that. Now, this is a judicial oligarchy. This is not Do they have democracy. their own ability to fund themselves, or do you have to oh, pass a budget? Oh, that, that, that's a good question. 
the, the thing is that in this, in now in this age, we politicians decide very few. The clerks and the judiciaries are the ones that decide. Why is that? Because in 1977, when I was talking about it, they did a very smart thing. Because Begin did not bring his whole administration, but rather he didn't want to see the left-wing clerks and judiciaries getting fired, he said, stop, you can stay, you don't have to leave. Like in America, they leave, right? You can stay, uh, uh, but you will help me to rule. Of course, they ruled the country in their way, the Mapai, the labor way, but not only this, but they did a very wise uh, pro, pro, uh, uh, thing. They, they vacuumed the power. They shifted the power from the elected officials to the appointed clerks and judiciaries. Uh, the elected officials was back then almost omnipotent. But now it is the clerks and judiciaries. This is the balance that I was talking about to bring more power to the people, to have us as a country that governs by rule of law, but not by rule of lawyers. You know, I know we're running out of time. I don't know, I think it'll go a lot longer. What do you guys think? <laughs> there are 2,500 people right here. And then I don't know how many countless others are watching us live. Israel, is an amazing country, and it stands on the precipice of becoming the leader in the world. We've got some incredible members of the Knesset, many I've met, some have spoken at CPAC in America, I've met many here. Matt, as the former Attorney General of the United States, somebody who also knows about politics and the political process, and about grassroots efforts and how the people can work to protect their own rights and to form organizations. What advice, and this is the last question I have before we run out of time, what advice do you have to the Israeli people? How can they influence their government and take control of this process and have a sound judiciary? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. So I speak all over, mostly the United States and especially my home state of Iowa. And the, what I, tell my fellow citizens, and what I would suggest to you is, um, I, you know, I always say the future of the republic hangs in the balance. Future of the republic, the future of the United States hangs in the balance, but you know what? As I think about it and as I visit Israel, I think the future of the world hangs in the balance. The free world and people that believe in individual liberty uh, and, you know, and creating a future and trusting God to guide the way. I think that all of us have to do more now than we've ever done before. And we can't get tired. I, I remember how I felt in 2020, having been in the Trump administration, having watched that election not turn out the way we had hoped, uh, and knowing that a lot of us, you know, I did four bus tours across the United States, I did countless numbers of engagements, you know, everything we could possibly do, and it came up short, and I just dedicated myself to not grow weary, not get tired, not think that it's somebody else's job to do the things that we need to do. 
And in, in the United States and in my home state of Iowa, it's very much a grassroots experience. It's knocking on doors. It's talking with your fellow neighbors. It's going to the coffee shop and engaging with your fellow citizens. And I think across the world, freedom-loving people have to explain not only what's at stake, but what the goal is. And if we get there, how life is going to be better for all of our fellow citizens and not just the elites. Because the elites are what are, are the people that want the world to, to trend towards um, you know, a totalitarian regime that only the elites control and that the ordinary citizens like you and I will never be a part of. So do more than you've ever done before. That is our calling. Thank you so much, Israel. Thank you for welcoming us here. It's an amazing country and amazing people. Thank you. Let's make our countries great again.